Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to the mother of all panels, the environmental panel and its impact on shipping. Today, this panel, in this panel, we are pleased and honored to have quite all the stakeholders uh, involved. We have law enforcement with Rear Admiral Linda Fagan, uh, Vice, uh, uh, Vice Deputy of uh, Operations, Capacity and Policy of the United States Coast Guard, representing law enforcement. We have Frederick Kenny, Chief of Legal and External Affairs from IMO, representing, allow me to say, lawmaking. And last but not least, we have uh, Mr. Kostas Vlachos, Managing Director of Consolidated, Consolidated uh, Maritime Management, and Mr. Stavros Hadzigrigoric, Managing Director of Maran Gas Maritime. And classification, represented by the speaker. Uh, we're going to touch the hot potato regulations, environmental regulations. Maybe we're going to have some overlap with the previous and other panels. So the, the way that we structure this panel is a series of questions which are going to be asked. And hopefully, we're going to have some time for questions by the audience. Adopted unilateral uh, regulations by the United States and European Union have been uh, found, have opened the Pandora's box to countries like China to do the same. This introduction of uh, regional regulations has uh, created confusion in shipping and introduced heavy administrate, administrative burden. Would it be better if the rule development would be coordinated by IMO in a harmonized way? And furthermore, can we have a pragmatic and efficient development to avoid conflict amongst the regulations. For example, we have sulfur uh, cap, which at the same time will introduce immense amounts of CO2 emitted in the atmosphere because the desulfurization of fuel is a gasling process, energy gasling process releasing CO2. I would like to have the opinion, if you please, uh, Admiral Fagan. Yes, good morning, and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to participate on, the, uh, on this panel. Of course, the topic of environmental regulations is, uh, is complicated, certainly as we've heard from the first, uh, first panel. Uh, complicated for regulators, complicated for those of us uh, who are both regulators and enforcers of those regulations. Just sort of uh, before I get specifically to the question, th thematically the, the view 
uh, in the U.S. with regard to uh, this complex regulatory regime, you know, the new technologies, the many stakeholders with, with many uh, differing expectations. And so, you know, the first is uh, do, do no harm. You know, as vessels are, the designs continue to change and operating uh, them continue to increase in complexity. Um, you know, we're focused on ensuring that we don't reduce the safety on these vessels, but at the same time uh, help improve uh, the m environmental um, impacts of uh, shipping. And the second is uh, a level playing field. Um, environmental regulations are, um, are, you know, require that we have a playing field that looks comparable as uh, ships uh, who are very, you know, international in their very, very nature as how they're operated. And that there's not an incentive to, to cheat or circumvent uh, the standards. Um, and so those, you know, again, just sort of uh, do no harm and, uh, and ensuring we have a, a level playing field are uh, important aspects of uh, particularly environmental uh, regulation. And certainly, you know, international standards are, are the best. The United States is a very active participant in, uh, in the IMO and a, and a supporter in, uh, in establishing uh, those, those international standards. Um, in ballast water in particular, you've seen the, the U.S. national priorities uh, sort of took, um, uh, took a forefront. And in those cases where we're not actually able to fully harmonize with the international standards, uh, you know, we, we work to ensure the, the greatest level of, uh, of harmonization so that, again, there's a, a level playing field. Um, so I think I'll stop there. I, I know there'll be a ballast water question that, uh, at some point, and I have, I have more, more to say with regard to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I have uh, the opinion of uh, Mr. Kenny as well? Mr. Kenny was with the Coast Guard prior to joining the IMO. He was participating in the delegation of US in IMO, and he was leading an army of lawyers there. So we're we would like to listen to his opinion as well. Well, thank you, John, and good morning, everyone. When you look at the, the issue regarding unilateral or regional regulation and IMO regulation, you know, just to set a context, in 2018, IMO will celebrate the 70th anniversary of the adoption of the IMO Convention and the 60th anniversary of its entry into force. <clears throat> And if you look at the goal of the architects of the IMO Convention back when they were drafting it in 1947 and 1948, it was really one thing, and that was uniformity and regulation of international shipping through global standards consistently implemented and enforced in order to facilitate the free flow of maritime commerce. Now, Clay Maitland earlier this morning putting on his Greek philosopher's hat said that uh, everything changes. Well, this is one thing that hasn't changed. This is still the goal of the IMO, is consistent, uniform regulation that's, that's equitably enforced and implemented. Now, regional or unilateral issues arise fairly often at the IMO, and the current topics on this subject are climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and also ballast water. I'm going to leave ballast water aside because I think we're, we're going to talk about that later. But when you look at uh, GHG emissions and IMO's response uh, in the wake of the Paris Agreement, I'd say this. Uh, you know, the relationship between the IMO regulations and the EU directives is, is well publicized and uh, most people focus on 
the difference between the IMO data collection effort that was adopted in uh, 2016 and will go into force in a couple years, and then the, uh, the uh, EU MRV directive. Now, the Secretary General has been working very hard to improve and grow the relationship between IMO and both DG Move and DGENV to ensure that EU initiatives do not undermine IMO efforts with respect to climate change. And that relationship is good and growing. Uh, the, uh, for example, the Commission and EU reps were active participants in the intercessional working group uh, that's working on uh, furthering the roadmap uh, for the uh, IMO strategy to uh, confront climate change issues with respect to shipping. And that was very encouraging. And finally, I'd say that there are really two sides to unilateral action. Uh, Sometimes the IMO gets accused of being slow uh, in the way it develops its regulations. And in some cases, unilateral or regional action can spur IMO and push it towards greater effort and faster effort. But I also think there's a danger to that because in many, many cases, what the, I the IMO global solution that's ultimately arrived at uh, works out well over time. Just to give you an example, and I'll give you one from my home country, as we all know that after the Exxon Valdez disaster in Alaska in 1989, the U.S. unilaterally enacted regulations to phase out single-hull tankers. That didn't necessarily push the IMO uh, towards any greater action, I would say, really, the Eric and Prestige incidents really pushed the IMO. But the end result was the IMO regulations were actually more stringent, and, and the, the world phased out single-hull tankers faster than the U.S. did in the end. A lot of people don't realize that uh, in the, uh, e or the IMO regulations, uh, single-hull tankers were phased out in 2010. They weren't phased out until 2015 in the U.S. So there can be adverse consequences to uni uh, unilateral or regional action uh, where really IMO should be the forum of choice to develop uh, global regulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's hope that the Secretary General will be successful. Uh, I would like also to ask uh, the opinion of one of the the shipping companies. I would like to ask Mr. Costas Vlachos to reply to this. Uh, thank you, John, about this. And uh, really, uh, from the operational point of view, we would like uh, to raise a voice of concern uh, for what is happening today uh, in shipping in regards to the development of the regulations and the unilateral regulations uh, uh, especially. It is not only the United States uh, and the European Union the last uh, 10 years that uh, they developed the unilateral uh, regulations, but uh, there are a lot of other states uh, like uh, China, for instance, as you said before. It is the Hong Kong uh, which uh, introduce uh, additional regulations about the environment, environmental emissions, but uh, there are other states as it is Saudi Arabia, Argentina, Brazil, that they introduce regulations in regards of the, of the health, safety, and other matters, and they try to replicate the existing regulations. Certainly, this practice increases the administration 
burden for the owners and the operators who have to develop continuously procedures, instructions, circulars, letters, alerts to the vessels in order to clarify and monitor the different regulations all over the world. On the other side, the crew is in a real confusion, a confused situation. This really, this over-regulation creates a, a very big confusion for the seafarers. De-orientate the staff from the main task. The main task is, it is the commercial uh, purposes for, uh, for operating a vessel and of course the avoidance of any accident. There is no doubt that uh, for all those who are dealing with the shipping industry today, that if there would, there would be only one body, the IMO, uh, as a responsible body to develop the regulations, this would be the ideal situation from the, from the operation point of view. Regarding the effectiveness of uh, the regulations, I would uh, again uh, like to raise my concerns about the pragmatic way that these regulations today are developed. And uh, to try to uh, draw the attention to the regulation to understand that uh, all these regula reg regulations are developed for implementation by ship personnel on board uh, the vessel, and therefore should be pragmatic regulations. Look, for instance, at the ballast water treatment that a lot of the previous speakers uh, talked about this, and to see how a land-based uh, drafted regulation it is, and how ineffective is this regulation for implementation after 13 years from the first date that this ballast water convention introduced. But it is not only this. If we look what is going to happen in 2020 with a decision that says overnight to change the fuel from 3.5 to 0.5, you will understand and you will realize how impracticable and how uh, little the, the, regulation, the regulators are looking to the real situation. Thank you, Costas. And actually, it is not only the ballast water, but it is inventory of hazardous materials, uh, it is the MRV, it is uh, many others. Let's hope that alignment will take place wherever possible. Uh, today, in the ship design, the target is to achieve uh, enhancement of uh, energy efficiency. This is achieved with uh, hydrodynamic uh, optimization, with employment of lighter, uh, better, stronger materials, with the uh, introduction of innovative power generation uh, systems, and exotic, or maybe not so exotic uh, fuels, like uh, LNG, LPG, methanol, hydrogen, maybe nuclear, biofuels. I would like to ask the shipping companies what is their opinion about which one of these measures, which could be operational too, like reduction of speed, is the most effective to reduce the environmental pollution? Uh, let me start with Mr. Hadzigrigoris. Uh, first. Sorry. 
Thank you. Uh, as you said, there is a variety of fuel. Uh, we can talk about uh, hydrogen, but hydrogen is not here today. We can talk about nuclear, but nuclear maybe for other reasons, uh, basically political and uh, security, is not here today. So the alternatives uh, can be LPG, can be LNG, can be methanol, can be ethanol, can be biofuels. Uh, if you look at numbers, and uh, these numbers are tonne to tonne, so they may be slightly different if we take into account uh, uh, the energy content of the fuels. LNG is reducing the CO2 uh, emissions by 20%, LPG 14%, methanol, which is a, was a surprise for me as I was reading it uh, recently, 60%, and ethanol 45%. So in my view, this is the directions to which we will go as far as fuels are concerned. Uh, but it's not only fuels. Uh, we have the EDI regulations, which will reduce uh, in a compulsory way emissions by up to 30%. Uh, what we need is new ship designs with slender hull forms, with bigger capacity, and maybe with slower speed. Uh, this uh, Dutch university that, that is playing the role of uh, Pythia in uh, international uh, regulations just published a study uh, saying that uh, uh, shipping can meet uh, their uh, emissions uh, control requirements by 2030 only the, if the speed is drastically uh, reduced. Uh, what does it mean, reduced uh, speed? Uh, we will need new port facilities, we will, we will see congestion in ports, uh, we will see other problems that will influence the money that the consumer has to pay at the end, at the end of the day. Can ship owners solve the problems alone? Definitely not. If we talk about emissions generated during the transportation of goods, then other parties have to be involved. Governments, port authorities, it has to be a global solution. We cannot do it alone. Thank you, Stavros. So, it's a cocktail of all these measures. What about Costas? Uh, talking about energy efficiency, we are talking about uh, reduction of fuel consumption and if we wanted uh, to link this with environmental aspects, we are talking about uh, CO2 uh, emissions reduction. Uh, in that respect, I would divide uh, the various uh, methods that you mentioned before, uh, John, in two categories. There is uh, the first category which is uh, trying to tackle mainly the efficiency of the vessel, which means to tackle the CO2 emissions reductions. And we are, we are talking about uh, safety devices or hydrodynamic uh, designs of the vessels. And uh, uh, matters related with uh, the hull. And all these measures has as a final uh, as a final end to, re to reduce the fuel consumption. On the other hand, however, we have uh, the LNG, the LPG, the methanol, and the other fuels that may be used that are going to uh, affect the environmental pollution in two aspects. Uh, we have, first of all, the CO2, a reduction of the emission, and secondly, the reduction of CO uh, SOx emissions and NOx emissions. We, as a company, we have applied both methods. 
I mean, we have applied uh, various uh, safety devices in uh, various uh, new building vessels, uh, as it is the Muse duct or the new lines in, uh, in, the, in, the hydro, in, the, in the hull design, or the Znikluth uh, uh, duct, and we have seen that all these measures cannot offer more than 4 to 4.5% as a maximum in the energy efficiency of the vessel. On the other hand, we have uh, very lastly run uh, a project uh, for a very large gas carrier with uh, the name LP Green uh, project, where we are trying to apply the LPG as a fuel, and we run this project along with makers and uh, sea builders and classification societies, and we have seen that by applying LPG as a main propulsion fuel, then the reduction in the fuel consumption would be around 9%, which is much more higher than uh, the usual measures of energy-saving devices. Of course, I know very well, and we know very well, that uh, the network, uh, either for LNG fuels or for methanol or for LPG fuels, is not uh, yet there and needs a lot of time in order this uh, network to be set up and established well. But we believe the future, and talking about the future, we mean the decade of 2020-2030 uh, belongs to the gas propulsion. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, it appears that, that uh, speed reduction is actually a very drastic measure because if we reduce the speed by one knot, given that uh, the dependence is not a cubic but a square, if we account for the time, is almost 20%. Uh, I would like to point out that 90% of uh, world shipping is moved by sea. Shipping is the environmentally friendliest mode of transportation. Unfortunately, many times shipping is perceived as slow-reacting and driven by financial gains only. We pursue energy efficiency when fuel is expensive, not the other way around. I would like to ask Mr. Kenny how this, the image of shipping can be improved. How can we change that picture, if we can? Well, thank you, John. I, that's a great question, and I'm really glad you asked that, because it's something that the Secretary General is very focused on. One of his key initiatives uh, has been to improve outreach and communication among all stakeholders in the industry and with the general public. Uh, I think the fact is, is that shipping has a little bit of an identity crisis. You mentioned that 90% of all goods uh, are moved by ship at some point in the supply chain and, and but most people in the general public have no idea that that is the case. They don't realize that everything they wear, that everything they eat, uh, every, nearly everything they consume uh, came to them by ship. Uh, you know, there's, there's the old saying that you know, most people don't realize that without shipping half, half the people in the world would starve and the other half would freeze. So they have no idea, and I think that impacts the public opinion of shipping, because we, we don't really shape the message. Uh, much of shipping has chosen to remain quietly in the background 
in the past. And, and, and many in shipping are very comfortable with that. But I think we need to ask the question as to whether this strategy is still viable in the future. Now, look at climate change issues. And I'm not here to compare what ICAO has done with respect to the aviation industry and, and greenhouse gas emission reduction for aviation and what IMO is doing. Uh, certainly the efforts of shipping and IMO to improve efficiency and reduce emissions from ships is significant. It's been going on for decades and of course it's continuing in response to the Paris Agreement. But I would submit to you that you would never know that from the media. And, and so how do we solve that? Um, well, why is the airline industry so much better received? I mean, part of that is that they really have a built-in communications arm. The, the airline industry itself is really focused on marketing and public outreach. And when you look at shipping, there's really only one arm of shipping that's focused in that way, and that's the cruise industry. Uh, and they're very effective, and they, they do promote a green message but the rest of the industry, I think, needs to look at that. So we're continuing to focus on this at the IMO, and I think we're making good strides, especially in social media, but also in traditional media. Just for example, June 25th was the day of the seafarer. Uh, the IMO tweet uh, announcing day of the seafarer and honoring seafarers had 13 million retweets. It was actually the biggest uh, Twitter post that day in the world. And that's encouraging. Uh, we've seen IMO being mentioned and IMO efforts with respect to climate change being mentioned in, for example, CNN, BBC, the Wall Street Journal, and New York Times have all run stories about IMO efforts on climate change. And they've been actually quite positive and balanced, I would say. Uh, but we need more of that. So. I think we're making strides, but we still have a long way to go uh, before we can get to the point where the general public says, yes, shipping is responsible, it's green, and I really, I really value what they're doing. Thanks. Thank you very much. I really like, like your answer, uh, Ken. Uh, I would like to ask a question which is actually an agonizing question among the audience as well. It's an $80 billion question. 2020 Sulfur Cup is fast approaching to revolutionize shipping overnight. Uh, Stavros, what would be your advice to the ship owners and technical personnel? What do we have to do? Okay. Uh, I talked briefly about using LNG as fuel before. Uh, it, it seems to be the optimum um, solution, but if you look at numbers, it is not. If you look uh, at the availability of the infrastructure, uh, we don't have, uh, uh, we have zero infrastructure today. If we talk about uh, uh, the supply with fuel of larger vessels that m should have an endurance of 30, 40 days between, uh, between bunkerings. Uh, the normal endurance that we include in ship designs today is more than two months. Even if we reduce it to 30 days, the LNG infrastructure is not there, and in my view it will not be there in a satisfactory way for the next uh, four or five years. Um, if we talk about numbers for converting a vessel to LNG, 
the price for a VLCC today is uh, more or less 80 million uh, US dollars to convert to uh, burning LNG, the additional invest investment is 16 to 17 million. And I'm talking about an endurance of uh, 30 days. If we talk uh, an, about an Aframax tanker with a price tag of 50 million, then the extra money that, you ha that has to be spent to make it LNG uh, gas-fueled is uh, of the order of uh, 11 to, to 13 million. Uh, we have seen four Aframax tankers uh, ordered uh, as, as gas-fueled vessels, dual-fuel, but basically gas-fueled vessels uh, from uh, Russians, but these vessels are going to operate uh, in the Arctic where the supply of LNG from LNG terminals, not from LNG bunkering facilities, will be available. Uh, so, what can we do for 2020 if we cannot convert to LNG? Uh, the, 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 what will set the game is the pricing difference between 3.5% fuel and 0.5% uh, fuel. But talking to oil majors, despite what have said uh, during the IMO discussion, uh, when uh, it was decided to apply the CO2, sorry, the SOX uh, uh, reductions by 2020 and not 2025, uh, is how the oil majors will produce this 0.5% uh, fuel. We have talked to a number of majors, all of them have said that they will produce it by blending. Uh, to produce 0.5% um, sulfur fuel by blending, we need 85% gas oil and 15% 3.5% sulfur fuel oil. This, in my opinion, means that uh, the 3.5 sulfur will be produced by the refineries uh, with zero investment for the next decade or so. And uh, actually, we have oil majors offering uh, supply contracts until 2025 with a price differential guaranteed for 3.5% uh, sulfur oil of, the, of about 130 to 150 US dollars per ton. With these numbers, and if we talk about uh, larger vessels, a VLCC for example, uh, the amortization period for a scrubber, open type scrubber, because VLCCs do not operate uh, very often in ports, uh, is about, the, the amortization time is about 1.2 to 1.3 years. Uh, it becomes a financial exercise. So my personal view is that we will see more scrubbers uh, fitted, even in short term. Uh, what the regulations will be a few years later, or what uh, the oil majors will, will do, for me remains a big question. Thank you, Stavros. Kostas? <coughs> I would like, I would like firstly to comment uh, on the fact that, as you said, the forthcoming regulations are going to, revolution, uh, to make a revolution to the shipping industry in one night. This is a mistake, switching from the current 3.5% to 0.5% sulfur, sulfur limit overnight is a paradigm shift of a magnitude that makes it unrealistic to expect that it can be a successful achievement, virtually as I said overnight, and would likely result in a period of 
very severe disruptions and market distortion. This is our clear opinion about the overnight. We are supporter of the view that a transition period should be in place, give the opportunity to all the parties, owners, makers, uh, refineries, uh, producers of fuels, uh, to go in a very soft way in this uh, uh, change from 3.5 to 0.5. Regarding the options that an owner uh, will choose from the available five options, and uh, these five options is firstly the distillate uh, diesel oils, secondly the fuel oil as a blend, as a blend of 0.5%, the scrubbers or the exhaust gas cleaning systems with heavy fuel oil of 3 point or even more, the LNG solution, and the last one is the alternative fuels, LPGs, methanol, and others. The reply cannot be only one, and uh, to my opinion, it depends on various factors. It, is, it uh, depends on the type of the vessel, on the type and the power of the main engine, on the voyages where the vessel is engaged, on the size of the vessel, the age of the vessel, the type of contract that the vessel has, if it is a time charter or a spot, for the next five years, and of course, if it is an existing or a new building vessel. All the options have the pros and cons, and the decision shall be taken after the proper consideration, of course, of all these pros and cons. To give an example, for a very large gas carrier or an Aframax vessel that is uh, only five-year-old vessel and make specific voyages between the United States and southeast of America or between Arabian Gulf and uh, southeast uh, of uh, Asia, uh, which means that uh, high heavy fuel oil of 3.5% will be available in very big ports like uh, Fujairah or uh, like Singapore. The most effective, feasible and economical solution is the installation of a scrubber because the payback period of this solution for this specific type of vessel is on around 3.5 years, depending on the type of the scrubber that the owner will select. And of course, the annualization cost I mean, the, the year that uh, the compliance fuel is not uh, any more effective for this solution and for this type of vessel is on around uh, 4.5 years. To the opposite, if an owner has a vessel of uh, 50K, a MAR vessel of five years age again, but with a daily consumption of 20 tons per day, then the most effective and feasible solution is to, to continue to operate with uh, distillate marine gas oil or with uh, a, a blending fuel of, uh, uh, of 0.5. So the solution is not one way and a lot of factors must be considered before the final decision will be taken. Thank you. Uh, of course, I would like to report to you that we also see from the classification standpoint, we see an increase in installation of scrubbers especially in new buildings, but also retrofits. 
another solution could be to hire a magician with a crystal ball. That also is a nice advice. Uh, we see a mounting uh, cost uh, for environmental compliance. I would like to ask uh, Admiral Fagan's opinion if we should reward those uh, these shipping companies, uh, the ship owners that invest in green technologies. So the short answer, yes, absolutely. But let, let me, before I uh, get a little more uh, information with regard to the question, let's step back for a second and look at the good news in the, the industry. You know, accident rates are down, spill rates are down, the overall quality of shipping is up, and there, there is a good news story there and an opportunity to, uh, uh, to, to share, share that uh, widely. At the same time, though, you see, um, you know, are the stakeholders and constituents groups sort of an increasing demand and expectation that, that shipping uh, minimize their impact on the environment and to the point with regard to the increasing regulation focused on in environmental uh, compliance. Um, and the stakeholders get have a, have a voice in this, and I use that term quite quite broadly. Whether it's uh, you know local groups uh, within states within the United States or or other uh, broad broad groups, and I would actually you know Fred pointed to the cruise ship industry. I'll point to the cruise ship industry as well as far as having kind of taken a leadership role in different aspects. There was a, there was a time oh, 10 years ago or so where the cruise industry was. Uh, uh, was really uh, the focus of a great deal of environmental concern with some of their operations, particularly uh, off the state of Alaska in the United States. And, and they actively engaged in the conversation and the, and the move forward to minimize and mitigate uh, some of their discharge impacts. Uh, you know, gray water specifically was, was a focus area. And moved to, to innovate and uh, develop technologies that helped, um, you know, helped again reduce and minimize the environmental impact of those those operations. And so, as I started with, yeah, abs absolutely, we should be in a position where ship owners are are rewarded for that investment in in green green technology. Um, I also, I want to touch on the previous panel. Someone mentioned uh, the human element in this. I think you're going to increasingly see uh, the the human the human in this increasingly complex uh, shipboard operating environment and the increasingly complex uh, technology is going to become even, even more critical. Um, with regard to ballast water, the systems work, but they require an individual that understands how that system works. It's not a plug, you can't just plug it in, install it on the ship, turn it on, and uh, expect uh, inspect the, the system to operate as advertisers. Absolutely a, uh, a need for, for understanding of, that, uh, of that, that technology. So with regard to, um, you know, kind of how, how do we work towards incentivizing uh, the, the you know, envir environmental compliance, uh, one of the things that's been uh, implemented within the United States, I know you are all familiar with our, our Qualship 21 program, but we've, we've implemented uh, an E0 program where vessels that have had no, uh, you know, no non-conformities with regard to environmental compliance, and this is anywhere in the world, are uh, offered and, and acknowledged as an E0 compliant ship. And we're in the process of, uh, of screening all of the vessels that comply for that 
that meet the requirements for qualship now, and I think we've begun to enroll ships. I don't have the actual number, but I know we have acknowledged and enrolled uh, a couple of ships at this point as being E0 compliant. And again, as a, as a means of, of, of acknowledging uh, just the, the commitment and the, the effort that goes into uh, to, to operating ships that are, that are environmentally uh, in compliant. And um, as I said, sort of at the end of the day, right? This is a uh, this it's it's a commitment. It takes uh, it takes a human, uh, the human element of both and the part of the companies and the part of the crews that are that are operating and uh, maintaining these ships to uh, to ensure that we've uh, you know we're, we're doing it in a manner that's as environmentally uh, minimal from an impact standpoint as uh, as possible. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stavros. Uh, are we going to see an increase in scrapping because of all this avalanche of regulations? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think scrapping is driven by the supply and demand equation and by the freight market. Uh, older vessels, uh, especially if we talk about Greek shipping, are most of the times fully amortized, amortized, so even if a small profit is there, I think operators will try to keep them uh, in the market. Uh, what are the new regulations that we are talking about? One is the ballast water treatment system, which is, let's say, it's a cost of uh, whatever, 1 to 1.2 million US. Uh, and ships have to apply this uh, according to the new IMO decisions, uh, uh, not, not, not today. Uh, if it, is, if it is a vessel trading in the U.S. and uh, the key, lay, key lay, laying was after the 1st of uh, December 13, then a system must be there, unless an exemption has been taken. But uh, I, from what I see, and we talked about scrubbers, uh, even if everybody uh, asks to install a scrubber today, not more than 10%, 12% of the international shipping will be provided with scrubbers in the next... Uh, uh, three years. This is the capacity of the scrubber manufacturers. Uh, uh, of, of the scrubber manufacturers. Now, the rest of the rest of us, uh, we will have to pay a higher priced fuel. This is 80%. This is 85% of world shipping. Uh, the problem with shipping, in my view, is that profits are driven down to, let's say, an industrial uh, kind of profit. So, long-term employment and uh, the timing of, uh, uh, of buying a ship will be more important than ballast water treatment. Thank you very much, Stavro. Uh, let's hope you're right. Uh, Admiral Fagan, I would like to, to mention the fact that the ports, the very busy ports of uh, Long Beach and Los Angeles have a very ambitious clean air action plan by which there is a reduction of 50% uh, of air emissions target for the next five years. And I am proud to mention that my brother contributes to that effort by installing solar panels in the rooftops around the ports. So uh, I would like to ask you, uh, do we think that this might hurt the ports and shipping companies will take their business elsewhere? We hope not, but what is your opinion? So this is a uh, complicated and uh, difficult, uh, difficult question. Um, obviously, air emissions in uh, in any port 
are due to a number of factors of which uh, shipping is uh, shipping is just one of the contributors to uh, to air air quality and you know the shipping I'm not going to I do not have a uh, crystal ball to predict how shipping uh, may or may not uh, react to uh, additional requirements particularly with regard uh, to, to air impingements um, but uh, you know, so certainly a, a complicated uh, issue, and um, as states implement uh, increasing, uh, in, you know, environmental regulations, uh, the 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 need for the 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 federal system within the United States to uh, to sort of be uh, be the the prime primary um, implementer of regulations, particularly as it pertains to, uh, to shipping, is very much uh, in, the, in the forefront and something that the United States Coast Guard pays a great deal of, uh, of attention uh, to. And so we as well uh, are, are monitoring uh, the, uh, not just the state of California, but others as they, they look to uh, impose, impose regulations and will um, you know, again, ideal. While while there's frustration with unilateral uh, regulation, either on the part of the United States or the EU within the United States, having a uh, a regulatory regime that's uh, consistent between the states is very much a, uh, a focus area. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wish we had more time. Actually, we come to the last question. I wish we had two two times that time, but. Uh, I would like to ask uh, uh, Frederick Kenny about what else, ballast water treatment. Uh, what, are, what have we learned from the saga of the ratification of that convention so many years? Uh, how can we avoid that and have uh, activation of conventions in the future faster and more fairly? And yet, Reportedly, about 40% of the systems are non-operable. Are we victims of public pressure pushing ahead of technology? Well, thank you, John. Uh, I just, as an aside, I'd say I was, I was speaking at a conference about a month ago, and uh, I got a question from the audience where the, the introduction was, the, the, the questioner said, uh, it's clear to me that the... Uh, the Ballast Water Convention was the worst drafted convention in the history of the IMO. I, I, think he, I think he didn't know that I was actually the chair of the drafting committee uh, for that convention. Uh, and, I, and I didn't take it personally because I don't think he was questioning the words, but I think uh, it, was, it was frustration with the, the prospect of implementation. Uh, when I lecture at universities on how IMO makes law, uh, I talk about the different types of IMO conventions, and there are really two types that are relevant here. The first type, and probably the, the, the most common type of IMO instrument, is one that codifies existing good practices or industry standards uh, or, or improves upon them so people know what they, to expect and, they, and, and they're okay with it. Um, you know, if you look, for example, at like the coal regs or big parts of Solus, there's no, no real issues there that the industry expects that type of regulation. And then you have technology driving conventions where IMO regulates uh, 
in the absence of a proven technology to meet the standards of the convention. And ballast water is not unique in that regard. It's, it's been done a number of times in the past at the IMO. Clay Mentland mentioned this morning the saga of Marpole NX1 and oil water separators. And I think if you look at, there, there aren't too many of us in the room that are old enough to remember when those debates were going on at the IMO in the 1970s and early 1980s. I'm, I'm not. Um, but if you go back and look at the records, the, the, the issues that were being raised then are very similar to the issues that are being raised now with respect to implementation of the, of the Ballast Water Management Convention because at the time, oil water separator technology had not advanced very far and the, the systems were unreliable, they were very expensive to maintain. Uh, there was a lot of difficulty, but over time that has changed. There, the oil water separators of today are vastly different than the oil water separators of 1980. Um, and I would also point to another convention that most people don't think about all that much with respect to technology driving, that's the anti-foulance convention. And you know, when that was developed, there really wasn't a good alternative for hull coatings to tributyl tin. But the paint industry was able to mobilize quite quickly, do a lot of research and development, and they came up with, a good, with good alternatives to TBT, which you know, had a devastating impact on the environment. And so by the time the, uh, the anti-violence convention entered into force, the industry was ready with alternatives to hull coatings that were available. In terms of the ballast water convention, I think there are some encouraging signs. Uh, as many people have mentioned, it took 12 years for the conditions for entry into force of the Ballast Water Convention to be achieved, which was 30 states representing 35% of the world's tonnage. And from the time that Finland deposited its instrument of accession that triggered entry into force on September 8th, 2016, since that time, we're now up to 65 countries with almost 74.98% of the world's tonnage. So there's been a significant increase, and I, I haven't done this research precisely yet, but I would say that the Ballast Water Convention is actually one of the most widely ratified conventions so early on after entry into force. We have to remember that the convention just entered into force less than two months ago. So it's very early days. Uh, certainly the Marine Environment Protection Committee at IMO is very much focused on the issues and will continue to do so. We talked about the revised G8 guidelines. Uh, there are amendments to the convention that we expect will be adopted uh, next spring uh, that uh, uh, normalize the implementation schedule. Uh, so there's a lot of encouraging things happen and I think it will be interesting for us to look back on this in 20 years and see where we are then. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, time is uh, it's true, and we don't have time for questions from the audience. Apologies. Uh, I would like to thank all the members of the panels. We've heard some very interesting uh, uh, answers. I would like to call the next panel and gain a lot of thanks to all members. Thank you.